Thank you, everyone, for being here. I am super stoked about today. Uh, one of my absolute favorites, uh, Brian Lidbeck, is here with us today. He is the academic dean at North Point Bible College. They launched their master's program two, almost two and a half years ago, and I signed up and said yes, and I've had the adventure of my life. It has changed everything about how I parent my children to how I lead you guys. Um, so I'm incredibly grateful for this man and the work that he does um, at the college, and I've had the honor of now sitting under him for two courses um, in the master's program. He is, I'm gonna try and read some of your credentials. Um, he's a credentialed minister of the AGA, probably ordained because that's as high as you can go, and that's the nature of the things that he does, the best of the best. He just finished his doctorate of philosophy in biblical interpretation and theology. Are you scared yet? <laughs> Don't be intimidated. He has the best dad jokes on the planet. Please tell some, please. <laughs> I literally cry in his class because he's funny. Um, if you can pay attention, uh, you will laugh. <laughs> um, he also has a master of divinity, which is a pretty big deal. It's not just your, own, your regular old master's degree. Uh, from AGTS, Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, um, he and his wife travel, and they have inspired our family to rock hunt on the shores of Michigan waters. Um, but he has been an influence, a great influence in my life um, through understanding so many things about life from suffering to how we read the scripture. Um, he's really got a lot to offer. So it is my privilege and honor to introduce to you Dr. Pastor Brian Lidvik. Thank you for being here. God bless. Thank you so much, Pastor Don and Pastor Jacob. What a privilege to be here today. I am just delighted. Uh, one thing that you're going to probably notice is that um, what you're hearing from me today is a little bit of a combination of a little bit of Greek, uh, a little bit of the common cold, <laughs> it's a little nasal, and a little bit of youper. I am originally from the UP, and so you might hear a little bit of that from me. Dad jokes, I didn't really prepare for dad jokes, you asked me to to talk about the scriptures and some really technical stuff. And this is going to be a little more technical than usual on a Sunday morning, but we're going to have fun with it. But any uh, football fans here? We're not far from Ford Field here, are we? No football fans? Show me any football fans. A foot, few football fans. Guess who I'm a fan of being from the UP over near Green Bay area? Can you guess? No? Okay. Green Bay Packers? Yeah, that's right. So I feel a little bit uh, intimidated myself today, being where I am, right in the heart of Detroit Lion country, but oh well. You know, one day I was uh, driving through Detroit and wasn't paying attention to my speed, which is not an uncommon thing around here, but uh, suddenly I thought, you know, these Detroit folks, they love to celebrate Christmas all year round, because I looked in my rearview mirror and look, there's these beautiful flashing lights coming up behind me, and I'm thinking, isn't that nice? They even have flashing lights in their cars and celebrating the Christmas season and everything. Well, that's not what it was. <laughs> and, and so I got pulled over, and, and the officer comes up, and, and he is not going to be calmed down or dissuaded. I'm toast. I was way over the speed limit. And it's like, oh, no. And he says, sir... I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm just going to have to, I'm just gonna have to uh, punish you to the full extent of the law here today. You're going to have to be ticketed. And I'm like, oh, no. You know what he did? <laughs> he gave me two lion's tickets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of you will get that later, but that's all right. That's okay. It's okay. It's okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for the invitation today. What a blessing to be here. I could just hardly wait to see what God's going to do in our lives. And i got to tell you, having these folks in class, and, and uh, so far Don, but hopefully pretty soon uh, Pastor Jacob here as well. Um, but they are wonderful people. How many of you appreciate your pastors? Yeah, let's, let's praise the Lord for them. They are doing awesome work here. 
I just appreciate their spirit, their love, their enthusiasm so much. And it's a joy to count them friends. So here we go today. How about the truth about God's truth is what I'm going to call this. The truth about God's truth. Speaking of the scriptures. Today I want to give a, a defense, if you will, an apology of the authority, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the scriptures. That's what I'd like to do. First, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about my background, how I became interested in the scriptures. I was one of these people who was so blessed to have a dad that got saved at a pretty young age when he was just a young adult, when my older brothers were just real small yet. When my dad got saved, when he came to Christ, he was radically saved. He went from being a guy who just rolled over in bed on Sunday morning and let my mom go off to church. How many of you know about that, have a background like that? Some of you were that guy or that lady at one point, right? Nobody wants to fess up. That's all right. Okay. And so he would just roll over on Sunday morning. But when he came to Christ, he just gave all. And he began to open his Bible and he began to just read like crazy. Well, by the time I was four or five years old, my dad was insisting that we be in church every week and Sunday school every week. And my dad began teaching me the scriptures on the way to Sunday school. And I would be in the back seat of the car with my brothers. And he would be over the back seat looking back, teaching me scriptures. Now, he'd have to memorize them first. And then I would, I would repeat them, taught me all the books of the Bible. Uh, and that just began to develop in me a real hunger for the scriptures. Um, and so it began to just build and build and build. And so I'd like to read a passage. And you can turn if you like, if you'd like to follow along. But this is in um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. And I would just like to start there and read with you. So if you've got your Bible, you can follow along, your Santa Biblia or whatever it is you have today. And uh, I'm going to read to you. And here we go. Kaihati apa brefus. Tahiera gramata oidas, ta dunamena se sophisai, esoterian diapistaos tes en Christu Jesu. Amen? Pasagrafe theapnustas, kai afilamas pros didaskalion, pros elegmon, pros epana proth, woo, that's a big one, rothosin, pros paideon tain and dikaiasune. And I know you're all familiar with this passage, aren't you? I'll stop there. That's the end of verse 16. But I think you know this one anyway. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We'll go to verse 17 too. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Amen? Now that's the King James, because growing up I've memorized in King James, but now I, I read daily in the Greek text, and I love the Bible. And one of the things that we need to understand right at the outset here is some presuppositions. And that is you need to understand that when Christians argue that the Bible is inerrant or that the Bible is authoritative, they're not arguing for a specific um, version of the Bible. They're not, ask, they're not arguing for the Spanish version. They're not arguing for a German version. They're not arguing for the King James Version, the NIV, or the BLT. That's the Brian Lidbeck translation. I call it the BLT when I make my own. So they're not arguing that any of those are perfect. They're not even arguing that manuscripts that have been copied are perfect. What they're arguing is they're saying that the original, what we call autographs, the original Hebrew text, the original Greek text, and in a few places like Daniel, the Aramaic text, that those were inspired of God and that the way that they were penned by the original authors was and is the inspired word. So what we try to do, of course, is to do our best to translate that and to make sure that we have the, the original words as much as possible. And that then is uh, what we have for our translation today. You with me so far? A couple more presuppositions. I believe God exists. How about you? Not only do I believe he exists, but I believe that he communicates. I also believe 
that man is made in the image of God, and because we are in his image, that enables us to communicate with God. And I also believe that language is a gift from God, that he has given us language so that we can converse with each other and so that we can converse with him. And so I see language as a good thing. Consequently, because he gave us language as a gift and because he has made us in his image and because he is a God who communicates, I believe that we are able to understand what he has to say. And I believe that he is able to write it down through human beings in order that he can talk to us about what he wants us to know. What I just said is not believed by all. I'm going to give you three points today with about 8,000 subpoints. And number one is the Bible's claims to truth. The Bible, you know, does claim to be the truth. Second, we're going to look at objections to the truth. And third, experiencing the truth. Are you ready to roll? The Bible's claims to truth. Did you know that the Old Testament portrays God as a speaking God? He comes in Genesis 2.16 and right off the bat, the Lord God commanded the man... You are to eat fruit from any tree in the garden, but da 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 Everybody say he's a speaking God. Did you know that the Ten Commandments are not really the Ten Commandments? They're literally in Hebrew the Ten Words. That's what they are originally called, the Ten Words. In other words, these Ten Messages, what we now call the Ten Commandments, because he's a speaking God. Did you ever notice that, if you like the King James Version, it continually says in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord, that he is a speaking God. He knows how to talk to us, aren't you glad? Not only what was spoken to the prophets and various people was God's word, but also what was written down. Because it says in Numbers 33, 2, at the Lord's command, Moses recorded the stages in their journey. In other words, Mo, write this down, and Moses is writing down what the Lord tells him to write. I suppose there was some later editing a little bit of that, because Moses does write that he's the most humble man that there ever was. And I'm assuming that probably Joshua or some later editor probably finished that part. And I'm assuming also the, the record of Moses' death was probably recorded by somebody later on. Uh, that just simply makes sense to me. How about you? But that part about being humble, well, um, that one was probably done by an editor a little later on. That reminds me. Did you all know, I'd like to share with you, I'm working on a book. Um, yeah, and uh, the title is The Four Most Humble Men in America and How I Helped the Other Three. Anyway, so that passage was probably written by an editor. Yeah, that was a joke. Just kidding, okay? You'll catch up. It'll be all right. So the Old Testament claims to be the truth, claims to be the Word of God, and Jesus also claims that the Scriptures are God's very Word. Remember the time during the temptation, Satan comes to him, and what does Jesus repeatedly say? It is written, right? Okay. David also, Jesus says, he says, David spoke by the Spirit when he said, the Scriptures cannot be broken. So David is saying, or Jesus is saying that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then how about this one in Luke 24, 44? He said to them, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, all three categories of the Old Testament, Jesus says, are about him. Now, here's where I'm going with this. If Jesus is wrong, and the Old Testament isn't inspired, then is Jesus our Savior? If Jesus is erroneous about that, what else is erroneous about him? And so it's essential that we understand that Jesus claims the Old Testament is the inspired Word of God. And if Jesus says that, then I'm willing to, I'm willing to say, you know what, I think Jesus was right. And we have a real problem with the plan of salvation if Jesus was in error. How many understand what I'm saying? Say amen. All right. And so this is the Bible's claims itself. If the Old Testament is not God's authoritative Word, then Jesus was wrong. Then Jesus was wrong, and if he was wrong, then we have big problems. 
Okay, how about other New Testament claims? What else is a New Testament claim? Paul says, the Scripture says to Pharaoh, this is Romans 9.17, everybody say, the Scripture says... So what is he doing? He personifies the Scripture because to him there was no difference between what God says and what the Scripture says. What the Scripture says, God says. Now these are the claims the Bible makes. The one that we just read. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, it's all Scripture. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. Is God Breathed. You heard me use the word, the Greek word there, theopneustos. Theopneustos. Theos is the Greek word for God. Pneustos is the word for like air, wind, breath, inspiration. It's the breath of God. Everybody say the very breath of God. So the Apostle Paul is claiming that the scriptures are the very breath of God. If that's the case, I would like to ask this question. Can God breathe error? No, I don't believe a holy God can say anything erroneous. And all-knowing, what we call um, omniscient, all-powerful God, when He speaks, when He breathes into these human vessels and tells them and uh, leads them with what to write, it is the very breath of God Paul says, and I don't believe God can breathe error. Therefore, the scriptures are the authoritative, reliable word of God. This is the Bible's own claims. It also says in that passage that they are holy. In other words, a holy God has spoken holy words, sacred words. It, and it's the written text itself that is the very breath of God, not just the writer, not the reader, it's the actual text is the breath of God. This is the very breath of God. Wow, that's quite a claim, isn't it? Say, Pastor Brian, are you sure you can back this up? Well, we're going to take a shot at it, okay? If the Scripture is the very breath of God, then it must be without error, for a holy God cannot breathe error. Some people think, well, you know what? I believe the Bible sort of generally inspired you know, like the story of redemption and of salvation. But I'm not so sure about the rest of those texts and stuff because, you know, the archaeologists said that there are no such people as the Hittites. And those Hittites are all over the place in the, in the Old Testament. And, uh, but there's no evidence for those Hittites, so the Bible must be wrong. And then all of a sudden they discover, guess what? The cities of the Hittites. And now it's well known that the Bible was right after all. You know what I do when somebody has a really good reputation? I give them the benefit of the doubt when something looks the opposite. You know what I mean? So if a close friend of mine who loved Jesus, and all of a sudden I saw this friend of mine, and they, they were known really well for being uh, just faithful to their spouse and everything, and I suddenly see them with somebody of the opposite of sex, and they're giving them a hug, and, and they're out somewhere, and there's nobody else around, and it looks real fishy, I'm not going to say, aha, you're being unfaithful. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to assume there's something I, I don't understand there. And I go back later, and what do I discover? It was their sister. That's the law of suspended judgment. Sometimes we can't answer every question that we have about the Bible, and we don't know everything because, let's face it, you know, some of this stuff was written 3,500 years ago. It's been a while. And we may not have all of the answers for every accusation, but I'll tell you this, I know this book well enough to know it has a great reputation. And if there's something I don't immediately understand, I don't just throw it out the window. I just say, eventually it's going to become clear, even if I don't understand right now. That passage in the Bible in Mark 16, for years and years I couldn't understand that. They'll take up serpents, it says. Take up serpents? Whoa, count me out of that church. I'm not going to any take up serpents church. When you get out the rattlesnakes, I go back to Grand Rapids. Just want you to know that right now, okay? And I'm thinking, is that really in the Bible? And it's like, can that really be right? And then I realize, oh... It's quoting Exodus chapter 4 and chapter 7 
where what does Moses do? He, he puts down the, his rod and it becomes a serpent and then he takes it up again and God's simply saying that you're going to be like Moses doing signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. Oh, that makes sense. But you don't want us to go to church and start handling rattlesnakes. Woo, glad for that. Glad for that. You break out the snakes and I'm out of here, pal. I got faith, but not that much. I know it's limits, okay? So I have learned to trust the Bible and that if I don't understand everything immediately, it's okay because I know there's good answers because God is reliable and the scriptures are reliable. Now, how about this one? I love this passage. Now, even Peter, we've got to see what he says. No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.20 and 21. In other words, the Spirit of God came along and he just carted these authors along so that their words were not just their words, but they were actually God's very words. All right, you with me so far? All right, so we have the Bible's claims to truth. Now, how about some objections to the truth? What is it people say? I want to start out by first saying on this portion that most objections to the Bible have nothing to do with the manuscripts and their authority and are they reliable. It has nothing to do with archaeology. What it has to do with is philosophy. Everybody say philosophy. In other words, when you approach the scriptures with a certain worldview, you have already decided in advance whether or not those scriptures are really reliable. Are you hearing me? If I have a worldview that says, well, there isn't a God, and if I have a worldview that says, even if there is, he's not a talking God, and even if there is a God who talks, we can't really hear him anyway, well, then the Bible becomes immediately irrelevant, and if you have an anti-supernatural bias where you don't believe in miracles, then the Bible is never going to be something that you can believe anyway, and that's the end of the story. So what you have to understand is that when people don't believe in the Bible, it's because they are bringing their presuppositions, their preconceived ideas, their worldview, their anti-supernatural Western view, and they are reading a book that they don't understand, and they immediately dismiss it without any knowledge of its history or facts because their worldview doesn't allow them to believe it. That is the core problem. And it's disguised often with, well, you know, those manuscripts, I don't know if we can trust those. That's only the disguise for the fact that they didn't believe in their heart to begin with that this was even possible. Are you following me? Okay, getting to the heart of the matter here. So first of all, let's start with a, what we call a modern worldview. And a modern worldview holds to what we call naturalism. Everybody say naturalism. Naturalism is the idea that all there is is the material world. You don't have a spirit in you. All that you are is a bunch of cells put together. You don't have a spirit. Love is nothing more than a, the chemical processes in your mind, which is all just caused by physical things. There is no God. There are no angels. There are no demons. There are no spirits. There is no love as such. All that is is a result of physical processes. So when you approach the Bible from that standpoint, naturalism, then naturally there cannot be any miracles. So the miracles that Jesus purportedly did are just wrong. They didn't really happen. So if you have that worldview, you're not going to believe in the Bible. A second worldview is what we call a postmodern worldview. Well, there's modernism and now there's Postmodernism. Postmodernism sort of came full fledged in about the 1980s. The 1980s. So, you know, um, 1980s, that wasn't all that long ago. Boy, 1980s, I, you know, uh, boy, I was going to be born any time after that. <laughs> uh, maybe a little before that. Okay, maybe a couple of decades before that, if we're going to be honest today. And so, Postmodernism was, was moving in throughout the, throughout the 1900s and then the 
21st century arrives, and right about the 1980s and 90s, it takes, it comes in full force. So those of you who are older than, say, 1985-ish, you have actually lived through a transition from one worldview that, that the West used to have into a whole new way of thinking called postmodernism. Now, postmodernism tends to be skeptical of things, but postmoderns tend to be open to experiencing things. So it's got some good and it's got some bad. But one thing about it is, in postmodernism, there is the denial of objective truth. So there's this guy named Jacques Derrida, and he says this, language cannot, in the nature of the case, refer to objective reality. Say, what? <laughs> yeah, that was my reaction, too. Yes, I'm going to try to put that into English now. In English, that means words don't mean anything. And you can't really refer to something that, with words anyway, so the Bible is just a bunch of words. The, the, the meaning is in me, it's not in the text or in the author's intention, it's just in me. So, you know what, I can read all scriptures given by inspiration of God, but to me that means Mary had a little lamb. You say, well, that sounds ridiculous. Welcome to the world that you live in. You say, wait a minute. So you mean, you mean everything is just relative, there's no absolute standard, there's no truth. Exactly right. This is called moral relativism. In other words, well, if it's right for me, it's right. Now, let me give an illustration. Let's suppose, for example, that you want to participate in some kind of immorality. And you want to Im and participate in immorality because you love that person, you say. Well, who cares if it's right or if it's wrong as long as we both love each other? Moral relativism. What you're saying is there is no standard above me that I'm accountable to that I can do whatever I want, and if it makes me feel good, it's okay. Everybody understand what I'm saying? That is a world that you now live in. We have gone from there being absolute standards to there being everything depends on how I feel. Everything depends on, on what I think right now. Well, you know what? What if I'm in the mood to come slap you? I just feel that that's a good thing to do. And you're going to say, what if I'm in the mood to slap you back? If there is no standard of right and wrong, we are in trouble. Are you getting that? This is the world that you live in. And so when your preachers, your pastors get up here and they say, this is what the Bible says, thou shalt not, and you get mad, ooh, who are you to tell me what to do? Oh, well, it isn't me, I'm just a messenger boy here. See, God wrote that and he's bigger than you are, and he has standards higher than you, and his standard is one man married to one woman for life. And when we violate that standard, that's on us, right? Oh, yeah, a lot of amens with that one. Oh, amens. See, I'm popular today. See, we don't always live up to the standard. We all know that. But there is a standard. God's standard. You know, the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You all know that, right? I think we understand the basic meaning of that. But did you know that when it says that, that is just a short, negative way of saying a positive truth. Do you know what the positive truth is? Here's what it is. You must have high regard for God's plan of marriage. That's, adultery is just a short way of saying that you have to take seriously God's plan. So what does that mean then, thou shalt not commit adultery? That means you have to go back to the Genesis account, one man married to one woman for life. Well, what about, what about sexuality outside of marriage? One man married to one woman. Well, what about this other activity? One man married to one. What about five people? One man. It's a short way of saying, go back to God's plan and live that plan. Anybody hear what I'm saying today? Okay, so now, living in a postmodern world where everything is relative and there isn't any truth, 
then it becomes easy to just dismiss this book because who, who is this God to tell me what to do? That is what we're up against in our culture. It isn't about whether it's reliable. It's about whether or not, philosophically speaking, I want to say there is a truth and words matter. I would define truth as truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is what corresponds. So if I say that over there is a microphone stand and there really is a microphone stand, I have told the... Now if I say there's an elephant flying through the room, but there's not, I have not told the... But when God says something and it corresponds to the way things really are, He has told the truth. And I believe the Scriptures are the truth. Many objections then to the authority of Scripture have nothing to do with the facts about the Bible's transmission, but it just boils down to the critic's own world view, and they dismiss it out of hand. Okay, so there's your philosophical objections. Moving along, historical objections. Okay, what other kind of objections are there to Scripture? Well, there's um, several out there today, but let me, um, let me just go here with one of them called the Bauer-Ehrman Thesis. Now, let me tell you about this guy named Bart Ehrman. You ever, anybody ever hear of him? Oh, a couple of you have maybe? Okay. So, Bart was a, one of the leading one of the leading uh, proponents of what we call textual criticism, researching early manuscripts and all that kind of thing. And Bart was an evangelical, born-again Christian. Bart went to graduate school, and he was doing some work on the Gospel of Mark, and he couldn't resolve the problem that he was having. He couldn't see how to work it out. So he submits his paper, and the, and the professor comes back and says to him, Maybe Mark just made a mistake. That sent Bart Ehrman into a tailspin. He gave up his Christianity. He threw out the authority of Scripture. And he has become the number one spokesperson on college campuses against the authority of the Bible. Sad story, isn't it? Because, because one professor led him the wrong direction. Well, anyway, what Bart Ehrman believes, along with some others, is that the Bible, the New Testament especially, originally there was just all these different views and there was no standard view, but as time went on, the church came along and they determined what the truth should be. But actually, what Bart fails to see is that the the church didn't create the scriptures. The church only recognized the scriptures. And what the church did actually is just came along and saw what was already there. It didn't create what we call the canon of the Bible. What books are supposed to be in the Bible? Oh, the church just made that up. How do we really know? And so that's, that's what they say. But I'd like you to listen to something carefully. Here is what Peter says about Paul's writings in the first century while they're both still living. Speaking about Paul's letters, here they are. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. Peter in the first century, is referring to Paul's letters as Scripture. From the first century, it was already acknowledged that the books of the New Testament were Scripture. The church, in the next several hundred years, only came along and recognized them as such. They didn't create that. They didn't create that all. So the church did not create the canon of Scripture. The church only recognized it. Everybody say recognized. Oh, no, that was the church that did it. No, no, no. All the church did was recognize the authority that was already there. All right. Now, how about those manuscripts? Now, the reason the manuscripts are called manuscripts is because they're written by hand. Manuscripts. So we're talking about these, these oldest manuscripts, and I'm going to talk specifically about the New Testament ones here. 
Here's what Bart says about them, okay? Not only do we not have the originals, Bart says, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. What we have are copies made later, much later. In most instances, they are copies made many centuries later, and these copies all differ from one another in thousands of places. That's in his book called Misquoting Jesus. Bart also says this. So the doctrine of inspiration was in a sense irrelevant to the Bible as we have it, since the words God reputedly inspired had been changed and in some cases lost. So he says the earliest manuscripts had multiple, what we call variants, differences in them, because they were copied by amateurs. Wow. Now, you send your kids to school, off to college, and some professor gets up there in front of them. And here's what the professor says, just like that right there. The Bible has changed so much in the last couple thousand years, we don't even know what it originally said. This is what you will hear today. And the poor young people are there. Really? There's mistakes in the Bible? And there's so many that we don't even know what they even originally said? Now that professor standing up in front of them 99 out of 100 times doesn't know a word of Greek or Hebrew, the original languages, doesn't have a clue what they're even talking to, talking about, but their previous professor told them that, and they just believed it because it seemed like an easy way out, but they have no clue even what they're talking about, oftentimes. And so let's take a look at this. Let's just take a look quickly here, okay, about these objections. First of all, let's talk about the number of manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, I want you to hear this, hear this clearly. I read a little bit of my Greek Bible to you a little bit earlier. This is a good number. There are over 5,800 ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. 5,800 plus. And then we have all the ancient Latin translations that go way back. We have over 10,000 ancient copies of the New Testament in Latin. And then we have all the versions of other Coptic and Ethiopic and all these different languages. We have all of those. And then we have what we call lectionaries, where in the early church they read the Bible and we have all the copies. Do you know that if we did not have an original Greek manuscript of the actual text of Scripture, just from what they read on Sunday morning in church, we can reproduce the entire New Testament. When you add up all of these manuscripts that we have, we are somewhere in the vicinity of 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. Somebody say 25 grand. That is a whole lot of manuscripts. We have cataloged to date, probably more now since the last time I saw the statistic, 127 papyri. That's, that's manuscripts written on ancient papyrus, which as you know, just would disintegrate rapidly, but they have been preserved, and we keep finding more and more and more. The Rylands text, what it's called papyrus number 52, dates to about the year 110 to 125. In other words, we have a fragment of a manuscript that goes so close to the New Testament time that Bart's argument almost is becoming irrelevant because we're getting manuscripts. We just found a few years ago more manuscripts, and there's one that may date to the year 90. That's getting mighty close to the time of writing. And so his argument, frankly, about us having much, much later is becoming more and more irrelevant. Now, we have a chart here. It's a comparison of ancient works with the New Testament. And so if we could put that up there, I don't know how well you could see that, but um, give it a try anyway. Let me just give you an example. Homer, the Iliad. It used to be we only had 600 and some copies of that. We now, because we keep finding more and more, have about 1,800 copies of Homer's Iliad. 1,800. Again, New Testament Greek manuscripts, 
5,800 plus. And that's as close as you come to an ancient writing in terms of number of manuscripts. Herodotus, 109 manuscripts. Plato, 210, his tetralogies. Tacitus, uh, just a handful. Pliny the Elder, 200. Let me put it this way. You can go right on down the chart. We have, in most cases, a handful of manuscripts, ancient Greek manuscripts of all these different writers, and the, and the uh, historians treat their writings like it's the very word of God, like you can believe their history and everything in it, and you read it in our textbooks. The Bible, which has 25,000 ancient manuscripts of just the New Testament alone, not even talking about the Old Testament, 5,800 in, in Greek, in the original Greek, and somehow we're supposed to believe that Tacitus is more reliable than the New Testament. I don't think so. I don't think so. Do you realize that there are more than 2.6 million pages of the Greek New Testament. 2.6 million pages. You know how long it take you to read that? It'll take a couple of days. We have so many manuscripts that, that we couldn't even, one person couldn't even read them all, really. If you combine both the Old and New Testament, the whole Bible and old ancient manuscripts, there are more than 66,000 manuscripts and scrolls. You've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Well, that's the Old Testament in Hebrew. Our best manuscripts of the Old Testament dated till around the year 900, 1,000, somewhere in there. And they said, this is so far removed that if we were to find older manuscripts, it wouldn't look anything like the, what we have here. And then they find the Dead Sea Scrolls, which brings us all the way back to like 100 to 200 B.C., a thousand years earlier than our best manuscripts, and they find out it's very much in line with what we already had. So I'm just not buying it. Well, what about it kept changing and changing and changing, and as they kept copying, what about that? You see, because we have so many manuscripts that if there are copyist errors, which happens sometimes, that we have so many manuscripts we can reproduce the original because we can see where it, where it went off. So, for example, a copyist is copying along, and then he, his eye goes back to the page, and the next line he's going to copy happens to start with the same word as a line that's a little farther down that he's copying, and he skips a whole line in copying. Well, you go and read his manuscript, and then you read all these other manuscripts, and it's pretty obvious that guy, that guy fell asleep on the job. Okay? So the vast majority of what we call variants like that, first of all, are not serious, and second of all, are easily corrected. Do you know what most of the so-called mistakes in the New Testament are? The things like the spelling of Mary's name. There is in Greek what we call the movable new, and that's the letter N. Everybody say N. And sometimes, out of just simply custom, they'll add the word N onto Mary's name, so instead of being Maria, it's Marian. Big deal, right? That's going to change my salvation. That whether, uh, because of the custom, they add the N or they don't add the N in some manuscripts. And still, there again, we can go back and determine the best reading anyway. Again, what I'm trying to tell you is, if you know your facts about the reliability of the New Testament, it is the most reliable ancient document in existence by far. There isn't a close second. That's not the issue. The issue is right here in the heart. Whether or not you're going to accept that a God can speak and speaks to us and gives us standards that are greater than ourselves. That's the real issue. Because I have no problem at all, in my view at least, defending the scriptures as being reliable and as being legitimate. So we have all of these papyri now. We have all kinds of, we have all kinds of ancient documents. And I'm here to tell you that the Bible is reliable. So amongst all the manuscripts that we have, because we have so many, it is almost certain that among the multiplicity of manuscripts, 
is the original text somewhere. And through textual criticism, we can determine quite well what the original text said. Listen, we know what the Bible says. It's are we going to obey it? Our problem isn't really knowing what it says. We know. See, Ehrman gives a false impression. The enormous number of errors completely frustrates our ability to recreate the early text. But listen to this. Bart Ehrman himself repeatedly notes in his book that the vast majority of textual alterations are, quote, completely insignificant. Everybody say insignificant. This is Bart himself speaking, completely insignificant. The early papyri manuscripts were, were copied by scribes of differing ability, but the oldest manuscripts we have, those papyri, which are on original papyrus, which is absolutely incredible that we even have one in existence. But at least nine of those were written by, copied by professional book hands. And we have professional copies of the earliest copies that we have of the New Testament. Amazing. So no, it's not just some guy writing down a few words awkwardly. Professional copies. Amazing. So you don't believe me. If you don't believe me and you doubt me, then go see it for yourself. Say, where am I going to go? You're going to go. Can we all agree on this team? U of M. Some of you. Some of you not. Okay. Beat Ohio State. Sorry, getting in the flesh here. Okay. If you go to the University of Michigan, there is what's called there a papyrological museum. In other words, ancient papyri. And one of the greatest finds of all time of biblical manuscripts is housed at the University of Michigan called the Chester Beatty Papyri. And they have multiple uh, books of Paul's writings that date to back around the year 200 on papyri. And I'd like to show you if we can get that slide up. And there we are. That is my Greek class looking at the papyri from the ancient world. You say, you got to be kidding me. This is in my backyard. That's right. Right in your backyard are some of the most ancient, best manuscripts of Paul's writings that exist. And they're just housed right down the road. How far is U of M from here? An hour? 40 minutes. 40 minutes away. So I brought my Greek class there and, and showed them some of the papyri. And they, and they have all kinds of other ancient papyri there as well. It's right there, folks. It's just, it's just down the road, and you could see that there is great evidence for the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. All right, moving along here then, let's wrap it up. Finally, experiencing the truth. Well, I've given you basically a college lecture today. <laughs> it's pretty technical. But if you can, you can even get a little bit of it, you will be better off to understand that you can defend the Scriptures and what it is really that you're dealing with is so often a worldview because the facts of the authority of Scripture are actually outstanding of the manuscripts and so forth. Experiencing the truth. The penetrating message of the commands of the Bible, the anger that people have toward it sometimes, and the transforming message of the Gospel tells us that this book is not average. There is something about this book that has power in it. And it got a hold of me when I was very, very young. I went to Bible camp at age 12. And you know, I was memorizing Scripture like crazy. They had this memory contest at the time. And in this contest, they wanted to see in a week of Bible camp who could memorize the most verses. And I think I had like 80 or 90 that week, but I knew several of them already because my dad teaching me. And can I say, Dad, what you do matters to your kids, your grandkids, amen? What you do matters. And so I always felt bad that there was one girl that beat me that week. Trying to forgive her. You could pray that I work through this all these years later. Oh, to be beat by a girl. But anyway, I, I was. Nonetheless, during that week at age 12, 
at, the, at that time, I, my first Bible was a little Gideon's Bible. How many of you have seen those little New Testaments? I had earned that in Sunday school for memorizing Scripture passages. That was my only Bible. But that week, when I went to Bible camp, my mom gave me a full-size Bible for the first time. I'd never had one before. A full-size Bible. Something happened to me that week at an altar at that Bible camp that put such an incredible desire for the Word in me that here now, I was 12 at the time, now what, almost 20 years later, <laughs> maybe a little more, <laughs> almost 20 years later, or so, I have read the Scriptures on a daily basis since age 12. Because something, and it's the Holy Spirit's work, got into me that gave me such an incredible hunger for the Scriptures that, that I just couldn't put it down. By the time I was out of high school, I read the Scriptures cover to cover several times. The whole Bible. In King James, I might add. I couldn't understand it, but that didn't matter. <laughs> I got most of it. And that, that hunger has continued, and it just burns in me and burns in me for the Scriptures. And the Scriptures, I can tell you, have changed me and transformed me. And I'm going to tell you something. I know that some of you have this kind of testimony of you were an absolute bird brain in high school, and you did all kinds of horrific things. But I want to tell you about the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit, too. That when young people get this book in them and get in this book, that they don't go out and have to do all the crazy things that you did because the Word of God sustains them and they will live in wisdom. Someone say amen. My testimony is this Word's keeping power in my life. Now, I certainly have not been perfect by any means, and I am a recipient of the grace of God just like everyone else, but I am here to tell you that this is how you walk in wisdom. This is how you live right. This is how you have joy in your life. This is how you have peace in your life, and I suggest that you memorize every proverb you can in the book of Proverbs to learn how to live right. Amen? Amen. And I have used the book of Proverbs and it kept me in purity in high school and it kept me in purity for many years. And I want to tell you that all of this knowledge about the background and the manuscripts and all of that does nothing for us if we do not ourselves read and obey the Scriptures. Amen. You've got to open it up. And then here is my prayer today. This is my prayer for you. That whatever happened to me at age 12, by the power of the Holy Spirit, where I haven't been able to put this book down, and I read it in the Greek text daily now, because I love it, and I want to know what God has to say to me, and I want to live by it. My prayer, and I pray that right now you are catching something, is there's going to be such a renewed and new desire for God's Word that you're going to eat it up, and you will not be able to put it down. That I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit today, something is going to change. That the dad who never opened the book and says, well, I'm not much of a reader, that that dad is opening the book and is going to start reading and your reading skills are going to improve because you're in the Word of God. I believe that the mom who's ignored this and is looking for answers and is going all over the place trying to get her life in order and is living in chaos is going to open this book and out of your chaos is going to come beauty and is going to come truth and is going to come guidelines and is going to come peace because you're in this book. Hallelujah. I believe there's a young person in this place today that I didn't just come to tell you about manuscripts. I came here to say God wants to burn in you a desire for his word that you can't put it down and somebody's going to catch the fire today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I speak it over you that this is going to be a church that is centered on the Word, growing in the Word, filled with the Word, and distributing the Word around this community, solid in the Word, so that you are not tossed about by every little emotional thing that happens, by every event in your life. You are going to be grounded, and you're going to be strong, and you're going to have a testimony that when it's your time to depart from this world, you will have lived according to the Scriptures and been faithful to God. In the name of Jesus, someone say amen. amen. So my dad, yes, come on, give the Lord praise today. My dad, throughout high school, would sit in his chair in the evening after working all day, and he worked at a, at a home building industry, and he was a carpenter, and he would sit down after doing all the evening chores and mowing the lawn or whatever. Well, I usually mowed the lawn. How did he get away with that? Any event. And uh, all of those things. 
And he would sit down in the chair and he would open his Bible. Dad would open his Bible and that was my cue. I would open my Bible and we would sit there in the living room and read. And then he would fall asleep. <laughs> it's like clockwork. But I would keep reading. Dad, what you do in front of your kids, what you, what you are modeling is going to come back to you and it's going to be in your kids on steroids. What you do a little, they're going to do on steroids. Hallelujah, that can be a good thing. Amen. I want you to set the example in your household to be a man of the Word, the Scriptures. Moms, I want you to set an example. Young people, I don't want you to wait for somebody else to tell you how to do it. I want you to open the book and read. Just start in the Gospel of Matthew and read. God will speak to you. God will, God will open up doors for you. God will put a calling on your life and say, this is what I have for you to do. It may be a full-time calling. It may be to, to be in a local church where you're just working a, a job out there for the glory of God somewhere. But he will speak to you about what he has for you. So this is my challenge. I want you to begin a daily regimen right now if you're not already in it. I don't want you to try to read 25 chapters today. If you want to, go for it. Great. But what I want you to do is say, I'm going to read a little every day to start. Even if it's just a half a chapter. Even if it's a few verses. Even if you start in the Psalms and just read a short Psalm. I want you to get in God's Word and let God change you and transform you and give you His worldview. This is my challenge to you today. And this is what I believe that you will do. I want you to receive the message of the truth of God's Word. Amen? Hallelujah. Would you stand with me this morning? Worship team, you could come if you like. I don't know everybody in the room, but I'm here to tell you I came to Christ at a young age. Other people here came to Christ at a little older age. But one thing I could tell you is that today the best message of this Bible is that Jesus rescues from the power of sin and death. Amen. That He gives eternal life. And I don't know everyone here today yet. I hope I get to know all of you as our friendship continues. But if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know the, the main message you need to hear today is this. Jesus loves you. He died on the cross, this book tells us, to pay for all of your sins, to give you eternal life. And He rose from the dead, triumphing over death and your sin. And now He reigns forever as King, and He wants to extend forgiveness into your life. You spoke about joy, Pastor. You're doing a series. I kept thinking about it all the time we were sitting there before you even said that. I believe the Holy Spirit is going to fill this church with a new joy. I just want to prophesy that over you. The Holy Spirit's going to fill this church with a new joy. I just, I just believe it. But the individual that doesn't know Jesus, God wants to give you His joy in your life today, right now by coming to know Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, I just thank you for your mercy and your grace and your love. I thank you for this truth of the gospel message that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. I pray that if there is anybody, Lord, today that just needs a fresh sense of your spirit that you will touch them and fill them but I pray especially Lord for anyone here that has never given their life to you they may be saying to themselves my life hasn't been anything like yours there Pastor Brian but just like you I need Jesus and I need Jesus to touch me like he touched you and if you don't know him as Savior I'm just gonna I'm, I promise you I will not embarrass you in any way shape or form but we're going to all pray together with anyone that just says, I need Jesus. Would you just raise a hand and say, I don't know him, but I want to know him today, Pastor. Just raise your hand up right now. Thank you. Anyone else? I don't know him, but I want to know him. Anyone else? All right, everybody pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. Come on, right out loud. For dying on the cross to pay for my sins. I invite you, come into my life. Make me brand new. Save me, Jesus. Wash away all of my sins. I give my life to you. 
and I want to serve you for the rest of my days. And thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer and answering me. In your name I ask it. Amen. Amen. Give the Lord a praise offering, church. Give the Lord a praise offering. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands to this one, but I want to ask one more thing before I wrap it up. Who will make a commitment? Again, I don't want to not ask for a show of hands, but just in your heart right now, who will commit to a daily regimen of the scriptures to let God change you? Yeah, you might miss an occasional day, certain circumstances. I miss a day now and then. But the normal daily practice is the Word of God letting it change me. Dad, will you commit? Single person, will you commit? Mom, will you commit? Young lady, commit. It's going to go into my heart. Amen? God bless you. Thank you so much, Brian. Brian was one of my professors in Bible college, and I just remember his words meaning so much to me, and his <laughs> value for worship and the presence of God meaning so much to me. Brian, those classes that opened with worship and just singing out without a single instrument changed my life. I remember those more clearly than anything at my time at North Point. That experience of God's presence and that value for God's presence. And something that's really, really amazing is that God is really, 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 really present here right now. He's with you and he's really present in this table and it's such a beautiful and amazing thing. And all out of all the people Jesus ate with, people got down on Jesus for the people he ate with at the tables. He was eating with people that would be considered sinners and he was eating with people who would be considered holy men. But whether, no matter where you fall, pretty much in that category, and especially, gosh, especially if you responded to that call to know God today, you are so invited to this table. We want to participate with you in this table and on the table on Wednesday. So we're just going to take communion and we're going to sing one last song, especially if you accepted Jesus Christ and to know him today. We would love to come forward and have you participate in this with us. scripture to remind us that you're there in the darkest hour, that you are our shield, that you are our strength, that you have joy over us, over our victories that are coming, that you have wholeness for us. Thank you, God, for your word, for your breath in the scriptures. God, set us on fire for that scripture. Let us hunger for it more and more. And let it be a point of community for us. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. Will you accept that today, that God speaks, that he's spoken, and that he still speaks to us? And will you read the hard stuff, not just the good stuff that makes you feel good, but the hard stuff that makes you have to talk to somebody about it? Here at Courage Church, we believe in the conversation. Because there is something to be known about all of this scripture. There is something to be understood. And scripture is how we can know God. It's part of that process of experiencing God. If, if we're going to find salvation, wholeness in our brokenness, we have to find out what we're broken from, what that image is that is the reconciliation that God is fighting for in all of humanity, in all of his creation. And if this world is full of brokenness, where else can we find it? But starting with the scripture that tells us where we can find it and what that wholeness looks like. If you suffer in this place, you're a human being. 
if you have brokenness in yourself, in your relationships, in your identity, you're a human being. But that human being was made in the image of who God is. And the scripture is so full of his character and that image and the cry to restore that to wholeness. It might not be your timeline, but we can trust that his scripture has something for us in all of that. If you don't have a Bible, please come see me because we have Bibles for you. We can send you one home or you can find it on your phone. I can help you find the app. We're given so many clues. The incarnation of Jesus. We're given even the law in the Old Testament. 613 laws. The numerical value of creation, 613. There's so many clues. And we brush it off because it doesn't mean anything anymore. No, no, no. We are going to talk about it. If you want to talk about scripture, come talk to us. We will talk about it. There's so much life. There's so much breath of God in that. The same breath that made dust life. These are those words from the very breath and the heart of God that made dust a human being, can make you a human being into a whole human being. We believe that here. Don't stop reading your scripture. I know we've had a couple of these messages where we've been like, I hope you don't hear stop reading. And I hope today you hear Pastor Brian saying, read your scripture, read your scripture, read your scripture. In your darkest, most broken moment, there's something in scripture for you. You can experience God tangibly. You can experience him in the intellectual. And you can experience him in the community. And scripture fits in all of that. You've got this. You've got this hard life. And God's going to carry you through it. Thank you guys for being here today. Thank you for listening so carefully to this wise man who knows Jesus, has met the Holy Spirit, and trusts him. What a powerful, powerful exhortation of scripture, of knowledge. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for just nailing it. I hope you guys, if you need a Bible, please let us know again. Come talk to us. You guys are dismissed. Love to see you at the table this week. Please show up Wednesday at 6 o'clock. Army and Rademacher.